to From the Source. I'm Michelle Brenner and I'm your host. From the Source aims to answer the question of what tech jobs are really like, both the good and the boring. Today we're going to hear from Zoe Gannon. Zoe, can you tell us your current job title and how long you've had that job? Yes, I'm an engineering manager at Meetup. I've been there since July. What does an average day look like for you? It actually varies quite a bit. Um, One of the primary goals that I have at Meetup is helping the engineering team learn better ways to build software. A lot of my time is spent just with my uh, particular team, teaching them basic practices like test-driven development and pair programming. A lot of it is spent with the broader organization, um, helping them to identify things that are going well and reinforce those and amplify those things, helping them to find places where our practice isn't as strong and identify tweaks and different changes that we can use to help that get better as well. Are there metrics you use to determine if like a process is going well versus a process that is failing your engineers? Yes and no. I find that metrics by themselves tend to tell us part of a story and they don't always give us a clear path forward. So one of the first uh, things that I'll uh, look for, one of the first things I'll ask people is how they feel, whether or not they're enjoying what they're doing, um, whether it's easy or hard, whether it's kind of joyful or whether they have anxiety about it, or if they're afraid of something. Um, Often, those sorts of baseline feelings can give a lot of color and uh, um, depth to to see how different things are going. Uh, Beyond that, I might look at some hard metrics in order to help me understand why people might feel that things are hard why people might be afraid, Um, particularly uh, a thing that I like to pay attention to is the story cycle time, which is how long it takes to go from started to finished to actually in the hands of users being used. Um, I also like to look at the team's volatility, which is how much their uh, points delivered varies from week to week or sprint to sprint. Uh, Those two things can also help me identify, just in general, some kinds of um, challenging places that a team might be be in. But uh, yeah, it really comes down to asking people, how does it feel? Do you actually have an easy time doing this? Uh, Do you feel like you're going fast enough? Do you feel like you're being blocked? Um, That's often the biggest indicator to to help people find good paths forward. It sounds like a very holistic approach and not all managers are obviously as proactive as you. If someone is not feeling happy and their managers don't do this, would you suggest they bring it up with their own managers? Absolutely. Um, My philosophy uh, in management, particularly in engineering management, is that the manager's main role is the success of the people that they are coaching and that success both in their current job but in their career overall. Uh, Because if people aren't feeling that success, they won't be able to perform at uh, a high level. And that's really the ultimate goal is to create high-performing, not people, but whole teams, uh, whole companies that can perform at high level. And 
being satisfied, feeling that you are succeeding, feeling that you're growing. That's a that's a really key part to that. I definitely agree. I think sometimes managers can focus on one high-performing individual rather than the success of the entire team. Can you tell me what's the most boring but essential part of your day-to-day job? Yeah, I think uh, required training is probably the most boring but essential part. Um, when you're in uh, uh, management, when you're a people manager, there's a, a lot of responsibility that comes from uh, with that from a legal standpoint. And so, um, you know, it goes beyond uh, just showing up to make sure that, you know, you're getting your work done, but it's also about ma- making sure that uh, the company's liabilities are, are covered, that you're standing up for your legal responsibility, you know, and, and a lot of that is comes down to, to staying up to date with different trainings. So I have, you know, once every quarter or so, I have to take different online trainings. And that's, it's quite important, but it's also terribly boring. Um, there's a, another boring part that I'm actually trying to reduce, which is a lot of status meetings. Uh, often status meetings, I feel, are much more of a sign that you're not communicating enough uh, you're not being transparent enough, especially proactively. And so right now I do go to a lot of status meetings, but my goal is to make those obsolete just by continuing to communicate more and more. Can you tell me what is the most stressful part of your job? On an ongoing basis, I think the most stressful part of my job is is being on call. Um, just because it's very, very disruptive. But beyond that, um, there's there's definitely times when people are not succeeding, and uh, in that case, you know, as a as a manager, uh, where I view my goal is to help people succeed, it can be really difficult and stressful to to help them navigate a way to get back on track. It's something uh, you know we we could fall back to the the sort of lowest common denominator of management and just tell people what to do. Uh, but that's not something that will really help people in creative roles like engineering really succeed and thrive. I find it interesting that you're on call because I generally think of on call as a DevOps or IT manager position. Can you talk about why you are on call and how often you are called in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, um, one could almost think of it as like the, the theory of creating software. Because first off, uh, I feel like DevOps is a philosophy for how to approach uh, deployment rather than necessarily a role that a person fills um, in, a, in a DevOps kind of philosophy. And this is something that I definitely uh, encourage my team to work for. <coughs> uh, you have developers stepping into most of the ops roles because my goal as an engineer and my goal teaching my, my team in the uh, company around me is that a, a product engineer is responsible for solving users' problems using software. And so everything from start to finish and beyond finishing, that product engineer is really responsible for that ultimately. If a user cannot do something, if they can't get their solvent problem solved, then that product engineer isn't done yet. And so I help my team learn how to not just write software, but how to deploy software, 
how to own that software for the rest of its life. This actually has some really good effects at the end of the day because the person who is most capable of debugging a problem that happens to some software is the person who wrote that software in the first place. And the people on that same team who shared that knowledge, uh, particularly since on my team we pair program, uh, often whoever's on call directly had a part in writing the software that is breaking. Uh, and that extends to me too, as long as I'm writing code that gets into production, I'm also going to be in the on-call rotation. And so that's something where we can provide a much healthier experience because we uh, get to see how does this break? How do our users uh, suffer from this? And you know, how does it make their experience worse so that we can not only stop whatever the current uh, page is about, whatever that alert is, but in fact, go back, fix the problem so that it doesn't happen again. Uh, so as far as the kinds of problems I often see these days, uh, we're actually transferring ownership of some code. And with that, we're, we're looking at the different things, the metrics that we want to alert on. And so we've written a whole bunch of alerts, and many of them are not actually very good ones yet because we haven't seen the, the impact that our users are having. And so uh, the last time I was on call, I got uh, a lot of pages that didn't really mean anything. And so that was really particularly frustrating. So it sounds like the next step is kind of wading through the too many pages and figuring out what the right alerts are and the ones you are actually you know, show-stopping and you have to work on right away, even though it's you know, Saturday at 7 p.m. Absolutely. What we want to do is realign our alerting to things users want to do. And so this is Meetup, uh, where people can join groups, and from those groups they can attend events. And so those are the places where we really want to focus our alerting in the future. When people can't join groups, when people can't find the group that they want, when people can't join an event, when people can't find an event that's interesting to them. Those are cases where we really want to start focusing our alerting to say the things that really make us us, the things that users come to our product to do, we need to make sure that those things are working all of the time, that our users can always find the groups they want to join, the events that they want to attend, so that they can meet up in real life. That's the core of our business and who we are, and we want to make sure that we're always providing that at the highest level. So that's where we really want to start taking our alerts and focusing them. So it sounds like you're going to have a very core product focus alert system to kind of cut down on the noise and make sure if they can do the still can do the core product, they're okay maybe until Monday morning. But if they can't do the core product, we need to fix it right now. Exactly. That's a really great kind of balance to strike because being on call is stressful. Being woken up is, is you know, bad if you're at brunch uh, and you have to pull out your laptop and spend the next hour fixing a page. That's not going to make you very happy. It's not going to help you uh, recover from your work week. It's just going to carry that on. And so we really want to find the right balance where we're staying, staying focused on uh, the user's core capabilities, um, but we're also saying like, there's things that we're willing to kind of create an error budget around that is a little bit higher. We're going to let more slippage on, on these other functions. 
could you tell me what skills you find the most essential on a day-to-day basis? Absolutely. Um, I think the most essential skill that uh, I have uh, in my team, particularly with my goals of helping my team and my broader engineering uh, division, you know, find better ways to do things. Um, some of the very essential skills that I have to practice are empathy. And with that is listening and patience, um, which is a lot harder than it might sound. Um, but we really need to engage with people to find out what are the things that are, that are making it difficult? What things are they doing right now? What things have they tried? Uh, and how can you help them find new things to do and new things to try that will make it easier? And so a lot of that is very kind of engaging on an emotional level. So yeah, patience and empathy are, are definitely uh, core skills that I have that um, <clears throat> that I have to use that maybe uh, aren't commonly associated with engineering uh, practice, but I found you know, here in, in this role, in my previous role um, as well, uh, as, a, as an individual contributor, I found practicing those skills to be really vital for helping move my team forward and move me forward as, as an engineer as well. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a, definitely not something that they don't really talk about too much, but I find to be uh, super, super important. I think it's incredibly fascinating that this is only my second podcast, but that was also the answer on the first podcast. The number one skill was empathy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that there's a um, a growing understanding that uh, building software products, in a way, is it's it's very different from you know physical engineering. Um, it's much more akin to industrial design in a lot of ways, uh, where previously an engineer might say, okay, I need to cut something and create a blade, but the blade is very bulky. It's not good for people. Whereas an industrial designer would take into account the shape of a hand and the way that your thumb can move, the materials that they have in order to create a pair of scissors that work very comfortably. And I think software... Uh, engineering is much closer to that second version where we need to take into account uh, we have exactly one material, but it's extremely versatile and flexible. And uh, we can apply it in a lot of ways to solve our users' problems, um, but we have to really listen and find out what those problems are. And then uh, it's it's kind of doubles back because Building a software itself is a very, very complicated pursuit. Um, it's not a great, like, don't don't use this as a one-to-one comparison, but it's kind of an analogy. Uh, if we look at a passenger car that has uh, something like 50,000 moving parts in it, and if we look at a 747 that has something like 7 million moving parts in it, but, you know, if we look at every one of those moving parts as a, as a decision that needs to be made for the thing to work. Well, Windows 2000 also had 7 million moving parts in it, 7 million decisions. Uh, software is 
easily as complicated as the most complicated things that we build. We can't do it by ourselves. We have to do it together. And when we're going to engage in something creative and feeling together, we really need to nurture that creativeness and that feelingness for each other. We need to empathize very strongly with each other in order to come together and build something we can't do by ourselves. I definitely agree with that. Actually, one of the pieces of advice I often tell people who are just coming up or career changing is that software engineering is a team sport. And if you've worked in teams before, those are the most transferable skills you have, whether it's a work project or you were on a rowing team. But knowing how to work together is really important. Yeah, I have a friend, um, David Edwards, who uh, one of his hobbies is is um, linguistics, uh, but he's a professional software engineer as well. And he likes to talk about the different metaphors that we can use. One that really struck to me is, is that making software is like a jazz band where we get a bunch of talented people together and we jam for a little while and release something. And then we jam a little bit more and release something. And, and maybe we get a third release and then people decide, well, now it's time to go jam on something else. And it's very fluid, but very, very personal interaction like that, that I see on a lot of really successful, high performance uh, teams who build really great software. Is there any skills that were on your job description or you were advised to have that you never use at all? I don't know. I never saw the job description for this job. I was, uh, in this case, I was, I was lucky enough to be pretty personally headhunted by a friend of mine. Um, but uh, my, in my interview did have a, an architecting uh, session to it. Um, and I find, personally, I think architecting is a skill that uh, we as an industry and as a, as a profession tend to put um, a really heavy emphasis on, even though I don't think it's the healthiest activity that we could be working on. Um, simply saying, you know, architecture is... It's generally going to be the decisions that are the hardest to change um, after you've made them. And so starting to make those kinds of decisions before you've even begun building your product seems a little bit premature to me. It's, it's let's make this decision when we have the least information we're ever going to have about it. You know, if we solve one tiny problem that the user has and another tiny problem well, now we know two tiny things more than we did before we started. So our, architect is, our architecture is going to be at least two tiny bits better than it originally would have started off. And the more of those things we can do, the more we can understand what our architecture is. Um, and so this is something, rather than focusing on architectural skill, I focus on a lot more on trying to identify what are the problems? What are the decisions that I have to make right now? What are the decisions that if I wait any longer to make, uh, it will be irresponsible? I will have actually caused harm. What are the decisions that I can put off for tomorrow until I know more? What's the stuff that is in, like I can responsibly wait to answer? What are the things that have to be answered right now? Um, and that's something, uh, it's a little bit, I think, uh, it's a little bit more difficult because it, it, you're sort of trying to see trends and, and forecast things. Um, 
and looking into the future is really hard. But on the other hand, I found it to be much, much more successful for creating a software that is easy to change and uh, therefore easier to own for years, which is, I think, the ultimate goal of most software. It's definitely true. And uh, it's a really interesting outlook that I haven't heard before. If someone wanted your job, what path would you advise them to take? I would probably advise uh, working with teams who emphasize learning and empathy over delivery or knowing. Uh, I would particularly look for teams that have sort of a, a core focus on people growth, and I would dive into those teams. Um, a lot of what I learned uh, and, and what I do, I learned at a um, software practice consultancy, uh, Pivotal Labs, where those teams, uh, they have the explicit mission of working with uh, other developers, client developers, in order to teach them better ways to deliver software. But, of course, you can't just show somebody like, hey, you're doing it wrong. Here's a good way. Nobody's going to engage with that, right? We're going to get people going to push back, especially if those people feel like they're experts. And often, of course, what we're saying, and those people are experts. They've been doing this for 10 or 15 years. They are experts, and it's very important to, to be able to engage with them on that level, to say, here's the things that you've been doing that you're fantastic at, but here's things that we can tweak. And being able to engage with them... Um, in order to bring them along, uh, that's a kind of skill that I think is really vital if you want to get into a role where you're a change maker at companies going beyond. Uh, so that's, that's kind of in general, uh, look for teams that focus on empathy and learning uh, rather than delivery. And in specific, look for consultancy roles where you're, you're explicitly teaching people how to um, you know, find better ways to deliver, like build their software. It sounds like it's important not just focus on how do we build better software, but how do we make ourselves better and our teams better so we can build better software. So you're constantly improving two things at once. Absolutely. Uh, it's it's um really, I think, uh, what what could help people kind of move into the the, the things that I enjoy doing the things that I'm really working towards is is to build these skills that we can connect with people and elevate everybody. And that's, you know, bring make ourselves better and bring other people along with us. Uh, and it's really kind of, um, it's only successful when it's an in-calling kind of activity where you're bringing people in with you and, and you're asking them to come along with you. You can't push people to become better. And when people try to push you, uh, then oftentimes, you know, I, I will fight back too, right? Uh, this is certainly something that I uh, and, and everybody else, all humans, have challenge with. When somebody comes along and says, you're doing it wrong, of course, our first reaction is going to be, no, I'm not. You're wrong. But you know, finding teams uh, where everybody's focusing on kind of this mutual lift, this bringing people along to say, 
we're we're doing pretty good, but we could be doing better. Let's work together to do better. Is a place where we immediately want to come together. We want to go on that journey together, right? We don't push back. We don't say no, but we say, you're right. We we are doing pretty good, but we can do better. Let's start looking. And that's a, that's a thing. Um, the best teams I've ever been on, the and, and the best teams I've ever observed, um, they are teams that bring people along with them um, instead of kind of dictating. You know, they're like, hey, let's go together. Let's do it. Let's learn together. So it sounds like you also really enjoy having team members who have like a sense of humility where it's like, okay, I've done something great, but I could probably do better. And maybe I can think of that. Or maybe someone else on the team has a suggestion on how we could all do better. Absolutely. Um, my role models are people who, frankly, they're surprised when I tell them that I, I have them as a role model. Um, that kind of sense of humility, I think, is something um, the really, really impactful people that I've ever worked with have all been, I wouldn't necessarily say humble in that you can't, like, they won't, they won't say what they're, they won't say that they're good at things, right? It's not humble like they don't want to be looked at, but they're very honest. They're very honest about their strengths and they're very honest about their weaknesses. They're very honest about the fact that they're in the middle of their journey. They aren't done growing as a software engineer, uh, you know, and they probably won't be until they retire. Um, But they're very, very honest and straightforward about both, both, uh, you know, being good at things and being bad at things. And I think that's something um, that I really look up to. Uh, That's something that I personally strive to emulate. When you are looking to interview someone who has uh, not a lot of technical experience, either a student or a career changer, what do you look for in terms of potential or team fit when it's not a very specific technical questions you can ask? Ah, <laughs> that's, oh, that's, that's actually a really great question. Um, and and uh, I'm going to answer it, but kind of diverting because I don't think either of those things you suggested are things that are really very good to look for at all. Um, I think potential is, uh, it's a way of, of opening the door to bias because when we look at our, uh, somebody's potential, what we're being asked to do is prejudge them. Um, and you know, this is certainly something in other contexts we're saying, Oh, I'm going to prejudge. That's, that sounds like an alarm bell to us. Um, in this case, I don't think it's quite as bad, but I much rather look for things that people actually do um, and demonstrate than things that they have the potential to do later. Um, I don't think we're very good at judging potential of people. Uh, and normally, I think that that falls kind of in a downward direction. We, we assume people don't have the potential to do things that they actually do. And so uh, I don't particularly like to consider potential either in hiring or in 
promotion decisions as well. Um, in both cases, I really want to look for uh, things that people are demonstrating that they are capable of doing. And in interviews, this means if I want to see somebody uh, demonstrate a skill, I'll, I'll construct an interview specifically for that. So a person who has never programmed before, they're a fresh college grad, um, I will construct an interview where uh, I watch them learn because that's the thing I'm most interested in this person's ability to do. Uh, somebody who's just graduated college, obviously there's quite a few things about building production software for users that they won't have had an opportunity to learn. And we want them to pick that up. Uh, and then that continues too. Uh, I think learning is the primary job of, of individual contributors in software throughout most of their career. Uh, is to become better at what they do. And then doing that is the number two job. So yeah, I, I structure interviews uh, particularly to look for the things that I'm interested in and to see them actually be demonstrated. I'm, I'm looking for learning. I'm looking for empathy. Uh, those are the two primary things that I want people to demonstrate, uh, regardless of if they are just entering their profession or if they've been in their career for 10 years. Um, <clears throat> team fit also, uh, I think often team fit is weaponized against marginalized people in order to get rid of them in a way that uh, doesn't uh, um, open the door to any kind of legal liability. It's not something that I encourage people look for at all, but rather, again, that empathy uh, ability and um, often patience and judgment. Uh, and so those are something during interviews, uh, I like to as well look for situations that can test those things. Um, I generally run a pair programming interview. And often if I question somebody's patience or, or their um, empathy, uh, I will participate in those and I'll get in an argument as a way to see how will they handle being confronted, uh, being told that they're wrong, uh, or, or seeing somebody who's obviously wrong. I might get in an argument about something that's ridiculous uh, and, and be completely incorrect about what I'm saying in order to particularly see how somebody handles that. And so those are things where it's, it's looking for, again, specifically demonstrated skills that align well to potential without being as open to bias and to team fit with, again, without being open to bias. I think a person who has patience, has good judgment in how they interact with people is highly empathetic. I think those people are going to fit in well to teams. And I think uh, people who demonstrate a joy of learning, a willingness to do so, uh, I think those people are going to have high potential. And so uh, I specifically look for demonstration of those skills. I find that very interesting. And I think that's a really cool way of finding people in a very forward-thinking way. And I hope more managers kind of take that to heart instead of focusing on specific technical skills. The, the team fit one in particular, uh, I, I was um, 
once upon a time I was fired for team fit um, uh, two years after I began working at the job. So it obviously wasn't team fit. <laughs> um, but I had coincidentally uh, just come out as transgender in that office. Uh, so um, that's kind of like definitely informed my view of team fit as uh, as a metric ever since. Uh, I've had firsthand experience of how that is not, um, it's often leveraged in, in ways that are not uh, very fair. Absolutely. Um, when I talk to people about it and they say, oh, they told me I didn't get the job because of cultural fit, I sometimes say, well, that sometimes is just the person thinking, oh, this is a person I wouldn't want to have a beer with, which is a terrible metric for judging a person you want to work with. So maybe they don't want to have a beer, or maybe you should have people that challenge you and not just want to hang out and tell you how great you are. So that's um, you know, the phrase I feel like we use in tech a lot of times to hide that, just as you're saying, to hide the bias of people who are just like me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, it's um, in general, I, I find that whole concept uh, of team and culture is, is often a way of very, very softly saying, you know, actually, I'm just interested in people who look like me, people from the same background as me. And that's not who I want to be. And that's not who I think uh, really, really high performing teams. I don't think that they really operate like that either. Absolutely. How are you going to A-B test if everyone's answer to how should we solve this is always A? Exactly. What if what if we get uh, in, enough people in that we can find the ABCs, Ds, Es, and Fs? I, I think our uh, A-B testing is always stronger the more variants we have and uh, the more solutions to a problem we have. That definitely comes from people who have different backgrounds and experiences. I would say as... Personally, as an engineer, some of my favorite activities is when a couple of us get the same challenge and we're told, all right, let's come up with a solution and let's get a room and talk about all the solutions we've come up with and find the best bits from all of them and put it together to get the strongest solution. Completely why I'm a very big advocate for pair programming as well. Um, it's really, many people think of it as a live code review. Uh, which I would find particularly pretty boring to do. But um, the way I've approached it, many people uh, I've worked with approach it, the people who taught me how to do it, all approach it, is that it's really a collaborative effort to, to get more than one kind of viewpoint about what code you're going to write, even before you write it. And so it's, a, it's kind of a conversation with a side effect of producing some great software. And I think... Um, Spreading that out, you know, to as much of the team, to as many of the activities as possible is a really successful route to take. And I found so many occasions where I proposed an idea and a coworker has mentioned, you know, a danger zone that I'm totally missing. And I'm like, oh, no, good thing you told me this before I started. Or I totally would have missed this, which is based on them having different experiences and maybe stumbling in the same thing. What is your next step? Like, what are you looking forward to doing next? What are you working towards? As a personal goal, I'm, I'm kind of moving towards uh, enabling larger groups uh, of people 
to to learn um, not necessarily better ways of building software, but how to identify uh, weak spots and solutions to those weak spots and move forward by themselves. Um, so right now I'm working with a team of five people and kind of uh, um, uh, a broader audience on a, on a less hands-on, less daily kind of um, way. And it's very hands-on to say like, oh, okay, here's a skill that can help solve your problem. Here's a different technique that can, that can shore up your practice here. Um, but what I really want to move towards next um, is to take broader audiences and say, here's how you identify the places that could be better, the places where not everything is as smooth as it possibly could be. Here's how to identify those. Here's how to find techniques that can help patch those holes. And so uh, I'm really looking towards kind of, uh, you know, a second level up. I'm less hands-on technically, um, but more uh, broadly impactful at a basic level. And so I don't know necessarily what that role might be called. Uh, I have one role model that I'm looking at for that. Uh, and his title is Head of Engineering. Uh, so that's kind of, I guess, what I'd like to do, but I've never seen anybody else fill that particular role, and so I don't know what other companies might call it. But that's definitely where I want to move, and I, uh, it's something, um, you know, the, the company that I'm at right now, uh, I think that's some place where it would be helpful for the engineering team there as well to move in that kind of general direction. Uh, more broadly saying, how, you know, where are the places where it's not as smooth, it's not as easy, and how can we make it easier? So not just inspiring individual contributors and kind of supporting them, but also creating and helping leaders. So you're not just a leader of individual c contributors, you're a leader of leaders and kind of broadening that out. I think the next place where I want to be and the next step to follow the path that I'm on is to help engineering, you know, business units or departments uh, or <coughs> street, uh, um, kind of engineering, engineering um, teams to, to develop the idea of engineering as a practice, as a set of tools and techniques that they apply and constantly improve on. Uh, sort of like we might look at a legal practice where it's not a routine. Uh, you don't solve every case. You don't, you don't argue every case in court exactly the same. But instead, you have a set of techniques that you apply to real-world data in order to come up with your argument. And that's a, I think that there's a, a good parallel to be made there in software as well, to say we have a set of techniques that are fairly successful. We're going to apply those to real-world problems in order to build software that delights our customers. And when we run into problems that we don't have a technique to solve, we'll go out and we'll find a technique. And I think that's kind of 
you know, my idea of an engineering practice and a thing that I really want to start engaging with large organizations to help them build. Because uh, that's something I take uh, particular joy in. Are there any technical organizations that you enjoy being a part of? Yes. Um, so I work with an organization called Write, Speak, Code. We have the mission of helping elevate women and non-binary people in technical thought leadership through the activities of public speaking, um, professional writing, and open source coding. We have uh, chapters across the United States in New York and Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, as well as an annual conference in the summertime. And I'd really love uh, if people, one, if you're in one of those cities, uh, and I might have forgotten one, so definitely check our website at writespeakcode.org. Um, but uh, I'd love if people would, one, look for a local chapter and attend one of their events or more. And as well, uh, for the conference this spring, we're going to be uh, putting up our CFP uh, call for proposals for talks for that conference. And I'd particularly love it if uh, all of your listeners submitted a proposal um, for our conference so that we can get the best talks in. And if any of them wanted to get involved with their local chapter as well, that'd be fantastic. But just uh, showing up and participating in the workshops or viewing our talks is already something that I uh, would really want to encourage people to do. It's delightful. That sounds awesome. So if our listeners want to reach out to you via social media, how can they reach you? Uh, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do it. But if you wanted to, um, I do have a Twitter. It is at unused potential. Um, and I check that maybe you know, once every two or three days. So I'll definitely see messages and get back to people. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Zoe. To keep up to date on upcoming episodes or to continue the conversation, please follow us on Twitter at FromSourcePod. If you'd like to share your journey with our audience or have any questions about the podcast, please email me at FromTheSourcePod at gmail.com.